thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Thy praise confess, yea, of thy word, yea, my tongue would sing, yea, I covered my Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Greetings. Galatians chapter 5 says that in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. And there is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ divides our enemies. The world that we live in tries to divide us up in groups, this group against that group, there's a war against women, there's a war against uh, minorities, right? But Christ does divide our enemies as he conquers them and while melting us into a beautiful oneness. At the same time, in Christ, it would also be true to be said that in Christ, a man can be more manly than he could ever be outside of a outside of Christ, and a woman can be more like a woman in Christ than in any other way. And so, in that incredible way, like God in the Godhead, unity and distinctiveness are the hallmarks of His glory. We are one, yet we are very distinct. Amen. Amen. Women are women, and men are men. God made man according to Genesis. Male and female. In Judges 5, God calls our attention to the song of Deborah, a mighty woman of God. She was a prophetess. She was a judge and a leader of Israel. And the Bible tells us that her judgment was good and that God was pleased with her. Her song and her story should stretch our understanding of how God can and does use women for His glory. In our reading today, we will hear her story. And so as God calls us to worship, let us hear her song after God gave her great victory over her enemies as God calls us to worship. This song was apparently a duet. Judges 5 says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord for His avenging of Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves... Hear, O ye kings, and give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise unto the Lord God of Israel. When thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds also dropped water. Apparently, 
as they begin to fight their enemies in this battle, God sent a deluge of a storm which confused the enemy and gave advantage to his people. The mountains melted before the Lord, even that from Sinai before the Lord, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael. The highways were unoccupied and travelers walked through the byways. People had had to hide from their enemies. They were afraid to walk around and just visit with people lest the enemy catch them unawares. People were terrified and they were locked in their houses. The inhabitants of the village ceased. They ceased in Israel until that I, Deborah, arose. And I arose, a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. And then was war in the gates. And there a shield or a spear seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart was toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless you the Lord. Speak ye that ride on white donkeys, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. They that are delivered from the noise of the archers and the places of drawing water, they shall rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. And then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, and utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, the son of the Bedouin. He made him that remains have dominion over the nobles and among the people. The Lord made him have dominion, made me to have dominion over the mighty. Out of Ephraim there was a root against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Manshir came down governors, and out of Zebulon, they that handled the pen of the writer, and the princes of Ishakar, they were with Deborah, even Ishakar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley from the divisions of Reuben. There were great thoughts in his heart as he went. Why bodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleedings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead abode beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher counted on the sea, continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. The kings fought Canaan and Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishron swept them away. The ancient river Kishron. Oh, my soul, thou hast trodden down thy strength. Can you hear her song? She's singing about what happened in the battle. She's talking about how this tribe did this and this tribe did this. And not only did the tribe do these things, but God battled and God used a literal flood in a river to wash away the enemy that was attacking them. Can you see the imagery here? This is not hyperbole. This is what happened in the battle. They were there on horse. Their horses were broken by means of prancings, prancings of their mighty ones. Curse ye, Meroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. There was a group that refused to fight. Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite be. Blessed shall she be above all the women in the tent. He asked of her water, but she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. Wow, what a woman. <laughs> At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed and fell, he bowed and there fell down dead. 
Oh, the mother of Sisera looked out a window and cried through the lattice, Why? Why is this chariot so long in coming? And why tarry the wheels of my son's chariot? Her wise ladies answered her, Yea, she returned the answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two to Sisera a prey of different colors, a prey of different colors of needlework, different colors of needlework on both sides, meet for the necks of them that take the spoil. His, his mother was imagining he had taken all the great things and hadn't come home because he had won the battle. But that's not what happened. So let thy enemies perish, O Lord, but let them that love thee be as the sun that goes forth in thy might and lead the land to rest for 40 years. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness, your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for women of God, women of courage, women who will be used by you. Lord, I believe you have given us many great women of God in this congregation. Some are mothers, some are daughters, some are sisters. I pray, Lord God, that you could raise them up in a mighty way in this time for such a time as the times that we live in today. Lord, we long to hear your voice. We long to be changed by it. We long to be forgiven of our sins and fed with food from heaven. Feed us today, O Lord, and change us that we might be more like you. In Christ's name we pray. And Foundation Church said, Amen. thou this woman and it's a question that Jesus asked you'll see here in our text but in modern day vernacular would be do you see this woman okay Luke chapter 7 verses 44 through 48 say this and Jesus turned to the woman and he said unto Simon seest thou this woman I entered into thine house and thou gave me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet, mine head. With oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto the woman, thy sins are forgiven. Let us pray. God, I pray that you would speak to your people. I pray you would speak to men and they would understand how you value women. I pray that you would speak to the the girls and the women here today. And they would be bolstered and reminded that in Christ, a woman is a precious, precious ruby, a precious jewel, a great ornament of grace in the eyes of God. 
May we honor women as Christ did from this day forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The work that women do can often go unseen. The thankless hours that they labor doing what they might or others might call menial work is the stuff that makes for wonderful welcoming homes and makes for friendly, kind, gentle children. God uses women in so many ways, some of which men cannot be. Men can't have babies. Men cannot nurse them. Men cannot uh, do many of the things that women do. But their glorious work as wives and mothers submitting to their husbands and shaping their children cannot be measured in its value in building up the kingdom. What's more is that they can be used as standard bearers in so many other areas where some might even think it unlikely. God has not hesitated to use women uh, in places of honor and power and uh, in, in history over and over again in the expansion of his kingdom. Here in our text, the woman uh, is silently bathing the Savior in gratitude and worship. It's an amazing thing to me that the story writer and even Jesus himself points out a couple things. It says the woman that came in was a sinner. Now, could you imagine Becky being announced that way or being described in the story? And Becky came in the room and, well, you know, she was a sinner. Uh, You're not going to find that in too many texts of Scripture. And But even in Christ's forgiveness of her sins... He says to the woman, your sins, comma, though they be many. Can you imagine having Christ point out the fact that it's not just that I'm just forgiving the sins of an ordinary person. Your sins, though they be many. Wow. The humility that this woman must have had and what we learn from the story It must have matched her gratitude. She must have done some pretty bad things. But in the words of Christ, this did not daunt him at all because all of those bad and horrible things that she did that we don't know about, and I don't care to know about, what they did is increase her ability to appreciate and give thanksgiving to God. I don't recommend it. I'm not telling you girls to go out and you know, run the gauntlet and do ungodliness so that you can later be thankful that God has forgiven you for your sins. But I'll tell you, if you think that God only uses women that are pure as the wind-driven snow, who've never done anything, who who once their lives have been tainted and marred with the, with the crimson stains of sin can now not be used by God, Jesus says, oh yes they can. In fact, they can love me more. They can love me more than many of you. It's interesting to me that while the story is being told, this important host, Simon the Pharisee, the words that he said during this visit with Jesus, they're not even included in the story. 
That what this woman did silently was the focal point of the story, but not the important words of this important Pharisee. Except some words he did say. That woman over there. She's a sinner. Can you believe the Lord is letting her touch him? He did say that. And only the words said about her are what the writer included to write. You see, the value of what she did that way dwarfed the man's reputation. It dwarfed his net worth. It eclipsed it, leaving him in the darkness of his ignorance and his own nasty sins. The sin of pride and arrogance and blindness to his own self-righteousness, which sunk in the nostrils of the Savior, no doubt. The only valuable thing he did was to point out the rare ruby of God's creation, the woman crying, the woman kissing, the woman breaking the box and anointing his feet. You, You see, you don't anoint people's feet. They had a custom when you came in from out being out on the dusty road. They would give you, they would be like, like give me some hand lotion. And, you, and you, you know, you'd wash your face and you'd put lotion or ointment on there. And you'd freshen up and they'd clean the dirt off of your feet. And it made you feel welcomed and refreshed. She was showing the hospitality to Christ that the man was not showing. Christ's encounter with her. The light of her story shines 2,000 years later. Christ's encounter with this unnamed woman continues to break the crust of my own self-righteousness as I hear it knowing that I might find myself more like Simon than her. One of the things I love about this story of the sinner woman in Luke 7 is that it doesn't require a great deal of interpretation. Simply reading it speaks volumes. Perhaps one of the things we learn from the story is that actions speak just as loud as words, or sometimes even louder. And secondly, God is never daunted by the depths of our sin. His arm is long enough. It is strong enough to lift us from the deepest pits. Amen? God used a woman to teach us these lessons today. And your life, little Lydia, your life one day may teach this powerful of a lesson. You don't have to be a man to teach people. You don't have to be a great scholar to teach people. Sometimes just what you do, just when we were all, had our eyes closed and you went and you filled Pastor Mark's water. I don't know if your mom sent you on that errand or that was yours. but God sees it. The Bible says His eye sees all that we do. So I'm just going to read you Luke 7 and then we're going to talk about women. Is that alright? I'm not even going to interpret it at all. It says, it's the story says, so listen to me. It's only a few verses long. Matthew 7, 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, comma, which was a sinner. Everybody say, which was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. If you don't know what that is, you need to understand 
This wasn't the kind of box that you break. It wasn't the kind. It wasn't something to be wasted. It was a treasure. It had incredible value to it. But for her, the Savior was worth much more. She stood at his feet behind him. To me, that part of the story is pretty powerful. She was not even willing to go and, and confront him with her gratitude. She felt shame and humbled it, so she went behind him. It's even difficult to even imagine how could you even wash somebody's feet from behind, but she did. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head. She wasn't just sniffling, she was sobbing. Tears were running down her face. How could you even come up with that amount of water to wash someone's feet unless you were sobbing? She, his, his feet were so wet that they had to be dry. And she didn't see her hair as any more valuable than just a towel to wash the muck and the dirt from his feet with her tears. And then she anointed his feet with the ointment. Would have been customary for her to anoint his head. She couldn't even go there. She was silent. She was low. She was humble. Now when the Pharisee which had bitten him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what manner of woman this is that touched him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And he said, Master, say on. I'm sure when he did, he probably grabbed the lapels of his uh, fancy pharisaical robe. Master, say these great words that you have to say to me. Not knowing that Jesus knew the words that had come out of his mouth. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that the he that was forgiven the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. He turned to the woman and he said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? Everybody say that today. Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gave me no kiss, but the woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou did not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loveth much. But to whom little is given, the same loveth little. Some of us are plagued with a little ability to love God because in our mind's eye, our sins are so few. Where's Laura? I remember when I met you, Laura, you had the same plague that I had growing up. You just were too good. You lived a clean life. Your parents were proud of you. You were the good girl in the family. Not like Ashley. <laughs> Dirty girl Ashley. <laughs> you didn't have a tongue post and purple hair. Mom and dad were so proud. But the problem is that so were you. 
<laughs> I was just like that. I was the best kid in the Sunday school. They all smoked behind the church and did whatever things they did, and not only me. They wanted to do, they wanted to sneak and drink, and they wanted to do bad things. But oh, Robinette, man, he was so good. He was so clean. I used to think about how good I was. And what I didn't understand is how soiled I was by a sin that God despises as much as he despises the sins of this woman, which he did. But the problem is, is that we don't even see them as sins. Our pride, our self-righteousness, which the God says stinks in his nostrils. He never says anything about all the bad things this woman did stinking in his nostrils. But he said self-righteousness certainly does. He said to her, thy sins are forgiven. They that sat at meat began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins? And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. And we're going to talk more about that on another time. As God used this woman to teach us in Luke 7, at the home of Simon, he has since used callous, weaker vessels, as the scripture calls them, as towers of strength. It is no insult to be called a weaker vessel. The hardest rocks are not the best rocks. The heaviest iron is not better than the finest aluminum. And the soft, sweet skin of a feminine girl is not despised as some lesser value to the hard, square jaw of a battle-hardened soldier of war. At the time of Christ, the plight of women in the world was much different than it is today. In much of the world, a woman could be bought and sold like livestock. Her roles were limited to what men would allow her in whatever culture she was born. The law of God had not cast her in the light of this role, but the hardness of men's heart among God's elect people often caused them to acquiesce to the cultures that surrounded them. But when the word became flesh, the value of women, all women in the eyes of God, began to be better understood. The story of Jesus here on earth began with a girl. This is God's poetic justice. What does the scripture say? For the man is not without the woman, neither is the woman without the man. His story here on earth started with a little girl. No one knows precisely how old, but certainly a very young girl. God looked down with favor and saw that she was highly favored of God. She was a good, godly living woman. Like so many other great stories of scripture, like the mother of Samuel, Samson, and even the Shunammite, the story of the incarnation starts off with a virtuous woman. The Bible said a virtuous woman, the value of it is above rubies. As he called the twelve disciples, his friends, his most loyal followers, though, were certainly women, and his closest friends were as well. Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, and others whose names we will never know, saw fit to, uh, to God saw fit that it was even among them that a woman was the first to see him risen from the dead and to go out and tell the disciples of this great, great miracle. It was like God was saying over and over as he did in the home of Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? They seem to be uh, less honored in the stories, but not less honored by Christ. They played the most prominent role at his birth. They played the prominent role at the resurrection. They played the prominent roles throughout Scripture over and over again. But there are few people who honor them the way that we do honor the men of God. 
His view and treatment of women fundamentally changed the value of women worldwide and continues to do so day after day. In Christ, women are more womanly than they have ever been since the sin of Adam, which was instigated, of course, by Eve. Dorcas, whom the Lord saw fit to allow the apostle to raise from the dead, Lydia that we read about, all those widows indeed within the church, Priscilla being named before her husband Aquila in importance, John's, uh, the apostle John's mysterious good sister that he wrote his epistles to. Throughout the history of the church, God has continued to use women in his ever-expanding dominion over the powers of darkness. God says he uses the weaker things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And if women are weaker vessels, then God is saying, see, women, can you see this woman? You see, I use weak things and they're weaker. And so that's why women are used mighty, mighty ways by God. Their refusal to recant, their willingness to die for their faith helped bring down the Roman Empire under the reign of Christ. And when the Reformation dawned in Europe, God continued to keep women at the center of this tumultuous story. From women of renown to those in more ignominious stations, women played pivotal roles in this great chapter of God's work. Some through their lives and others through their heroic deaths. Once again, God blew the trumpet of this song started by a promise to never marry. And devout women would shut out marriage as the possibility by taking vows as nuns. When the story of the Reformation started, it started as Luther, when he would be convinced of the errors of the church. One of the great errors of the church was that women, the most holy, should be locked away and be nuns. And that men, if they were holy, would not, not marry themselves to a woman who was evil. You know, women and the relationship between men and women was, saw, was seen, I should say, as uh, something that was somehow um, ungodly. These men and women were held up as paragons of virtue. No longer could elders and their wives who raised godly children love one another and manage their homes and lives well. They could no longer serve as examples to the flock as Paul said they should. This perversion of its Gnostic nature needed to be addressed if the church was going to survive. And so Martin Luther did so. As this new biblical doctrine took hold, uh, entire convents emptied out many married priests and became power couples in the kingdom of God. And this was so for Martin Luther. Among the many liberations of Luther, there was a 22-year-old nun by the name of Katerina von Bora. Everybody say Katerina von Bora. She was a cloistered nun in the Cistercian uh, Monastery of Marathon, Germany. And had been there since her father sent her, sent her there when she was just five years old. She and a group of her cloistered consorts had become converted to the Reformed faith within the walls of this convent. And they begin to scheme and they begin to say, how can we get out of this place? And so uh, Katerina sent a letter and it got out through the walls and made its way to Luther. And Luther said, I think I can help. And so Luther knew a guy. You know, all these good stories start with somebody knew a guy. And so Luther knew a guy who was a herring trader. You guys know what herring are? They're, 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 they're fish, you know. And so he would, he had the uh, 
a job of taking fish and they put them in barrels. You know, you guys ever heard of things like shooting fish in a barrel? Okay. And so he had herring and they were in a barrel and he had them in this barrel and a and, and bunch of barrels on these carts and he brought them into this convent to bring them food. But guess what you have? Empty barrels, you know? And so he had devised this plan that when he goes in with barrels of fish, he's going to come out with barrels of nuns. Isn't this a great plan? You know? And so I'm not sure exactly, it doesn't say if they were in the barrels uh, or among the barrels or whatever, but I mean, if I were going to, if I were going to be leaving and my, my wagon is going to be looked at, where do you, where would you put the women? I'd put them in the barrels. Maybe they went, maybe they didn't. I don't know. I'm very careful when I tell you these stories. I don't tell you the things that I can't verify, at least pretty good. All right. So they came out, and, and now what Luther really hadn't maybe anticipated was that when they came out, something had to be done with all of these nuns. And so he had this job that took him two years to find places for them to live, and husbands to marry. And it was all working out pretty good, but there was this one nun. And every man that they brought her to, she really wasn't interested in, in, in uh, men were wanting to marry. Her name was Katarina von Bora. And all of them found homes and all of them found husbands. This one nun, she's, she's 22 years old now. And she's, uh, he can't find a home. And so he finds a home for her. He marries her. Uh, there's a lot to the story, but I think she kind of talked him into it. And uh, they ended up becoming somewhat of a power couple in the kingdom of God. The Bible says that their marriage, you know, uh, that it provided an example that had been lacking for forever. And that, that in their home, their home was a welcoming place. And that there was a relationship that was not a relationship of a man who was pounding a woman down in a subservient role. But there was a man where they were friends and that they ran the house together and that they honored one another. And their beautiful relationship became an example to the church. He was 41 and she was 26 when the two were married. Uh, she, was 20, she was 22 in the, when this whole process began. God's word had intended many as they looked at Katarina and they even said to themselves, they said, do you see this woman? This is what a woman, this is what a wife ought to be like. Do you see a woman like this? Another such woman was of noble birth and would one word... Um, and in the words of one, she would be the intersection of the Reformation and the Renaissance. And I heard the story of her life. I was trying to tell my wife, it's so complicating and so diverse that I don't even think it's possible for me to try to tell her story. But I would encourage you and your family to learn about this woman. Uh, everybody say the Queen of Navarre. I mean, doesn't that just sound like a story? Her name was Marguerite. I'll tell you about it, but the Queen of Navarre, uh, to me, it, it, it causes me just to, to think almost of a fantasy. Uh, her father was a count. He was a descendant of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V of Spain. She was born in the year that Columbus sailed to the Americas in 1492, and her mother Louise was the daughter of Philip II of Savoy, named her Marguerite because that's what her, uh, her mother, her own mother, was named. And they say that her mother, Louise, was called the most brilliant. She was among the most brilliant minds in France. And later on, uh, that would be eclipsed by her daughter, who was known as the most brilliant mind in France. 
Marguerite's brother Francis, born two years after she was born, later would become Francis I, King of France. And her father died when she was only four years old, and her mother, who had been married to her father when she was just 11. Can you girls imagine this? She was 11 years old. Now, you know, now all the things that happened with marriage now did not happen with marriage then. They would marry somebody and they would wait till the girl came of age uh, before there was a true coming together. Okay? But these women, uh, her mother had been married to her father at the age of 11. And I'm not advocating 11 year old marriages, just so you know. 11 year old girls are not allowed to be married here in the United States, not allowed to be married here at Foundation Church. Okay? But her mother, who had been married when her father, when, when uh, Marguerite's father, uh, to, Mar- to Marguerite's father when she was only 11. Um, now her mother is a 19-year-old widow and has two children. Marguerite was carefully tutored from her earliest childhood and she was given a classical education which included Latin. The young princess was well known to the learned ones all around her brother's kingdom in France and they all talked about this woman, how bright she was. She wrote poems and she wrote stories and things. Never, she wrote, this was something she wrote, never shall a man attain to the perfect love of God who has not loved to perfection some creature in this world. And she believed that that, uh, you would know that if someone has come close to God, if they could love others. Marguerite was 10 years old. When she was only 10 years old in the tradition that her mother was raised up in, her widowed mother tried to marry her off to the Prince of Wales when she was 10. This, is, this, this would not have been good because do you know who the Prince of Wales was? His name was Henry. And he was to become Henry VIII. Henry liked older women, and <laughs> older than 10. And so he said, no, thank you. Uh, but the alliance was courteously rebuffed and they were part of the royal family. So this lady was a serious, serious royal blood. Although she never married him, it was said that there was a man that she loved named Gaston de Foy. He was the nephew of King Louis XII. But tragically for him, Gaston went to Italy and fought in the Battle of Ravenna. And the French were defeated there. um, And he died a hero. And so she had somewhat of a romantic love for this man, but he died. At the age of 17, though, Marguerite was married to Charles IV of uh, Alencon. And by the decree of King Louis, who said she had to marry him. It was said of them that that she married a guy uh, who was not quite that great of a guy. But that he had great royal blood, but he really wasn't that great. Okay, But King Louis had the power to just tell her that she had to marry him, so she did. With this decree, Margaret was forced to marry. Uh, he was kind, but he was illiterate. Uh, and it was for political expediency. He wrote of the time it said, The radiant young princess of the violet blue eyes had become the bride of a laggard and adult. One historian said, She had been bartered to save the royal pride of King Louis by keeping the country uh, called Ar- Armagnac into his family. Uh, they had no offspring. And this man who was not... Such a great wise man. He didn't live that long. After the death of Queen Claude, uh, his brother's wife, um, the Queen of France um, was, of course, her sister-in-law. And when she died, they had two children. 
Madeline and Margaret, for whom she would continue caring the rest of her life. She remained childless, though, until the death of her first husband in 1525. She married Henry II of Navarre. Henry ruled a kingdom called the lower part of Navarre. Do you guys know your geography very well? Do you guys know that if you were up in, in the United Kingdom in England and you crossed the channel, what would be right across there? you guys know what's there? There's a big tower there made of iron. It kind of points like this. What would... What, what country would be there? France, okay? And right from France, if you keep going south, what country's there? Spain, okay? And so if you saw the country and you measured it, and then another one, you know, and they kind of look like blocks, but then there's this little block that goes into Spain that looks like it should be Spain, but it's not. It's really France. It's called Navarre. It's a very, very small kingdom, but it was a seat of power and influence. The Venetian ambassador of that time praised Marguerite as knowing all the secrets of diplomatic art, his to be treated with deference and circumspection. The Queen of Navarre's most remarkable adventure, though, uh, this is pretty amazing. Girls, I can't imagine any of you doing this, but maybe Rebecca, okay? Uh, her brother, the King of France, got captured and put in prison. And she was like, we're having none of this. So imagine, Nathaniel is the king. Well, it actually would have to be her little brother. So it would be um, Gideon is captured one day when you're growing up. And you hear about it. And so instead of doing nothing about it, you're a lady and you're a renowned lady. And people know this. She wasn't afraid. Um, history tells us that what happened was he, he was taken, being held prisoner in Spain by the Roman emperor after being captured in the Battle of Pavia in Italy. During this critical period, the Queen Marguerite, known as the Queen of Navarre, rode horseback through the wintry woods. Can you, are you ready? Are you still there? She's riding horseback through the woods. They said she rode 12 hours a day for days on end. And she finally got to him. She wrote letters and she rescued her brother from prison somehow. Isn't this amazing? Okay, this, this woman. All right. Her only son, Jean, was born, or Jean, was born in uh, July of 1530 when Margaret was 38 years old, an age considered old by 16th century standards. Um, the child died on Christmas Day of the same year, and it was a bane to her soul, and it was very pa painful. Scholars believe that grief motivated Marguerite to write her most controversial work called Mirror of the Sinful Soul. But when she wrote it, her theology had been challenged and her, uh, she had been reading and studying and been influenced by reformers at the time. And so when she wrote this, the theologians at the Sorbonne in France said that what she had written was heresy. And one of the monks said, you know what we should do to her? We should sew her into a sack and throw her in the river. That's what we should do. This woman is a heretic. But alas, she was too important and too well known. Following the example set by her mother, she became the most influential in France during her lifetime. And uh, her brother, we know, acceded to the throne in France. She had a group of people around her. I was trying to explain this. In that day in France, if you were an influential person, you would have kind of a posse. Okay? But we wouldn't call it that. It had a, a nicer name. Okay? So none of you girls are allowed to call your group of friends your posse. Okay? But you can call them your salon. Can you say salon? She had a salon of artists. She had a salon of educated people. Uh, the great 
uh, Greek writer Erasmus even wrote about her because he uh, interacted with her salon. Her salon had a name. It was called the New Parnassius. And they became famous all around the world. And uh, she gathered these people around her and they had great uh, conversation and interaction and art and poetry. And they wrote plays and incredible things. Pierre Brompton said of her, she was a great princess. But in addition to all that, she was kind and gentle, gracious, charitable, a great dispenser of alms and friendly to the poor. Uh, Erasmus said this of her, for a long time I have cherished all my many excellent gifts that God has bestowed upon you, queen. Prudence, worthy of a philosopher, chastity, moderation, piety, invincible strength of the soul, marvelous contempt for all the vanities of this world. Who could keep from admiring in the great king's sister such qualities as these so rare even among the priests and the monks? Her lifestyle that she lived impressed people and it was an example of Christ even in a place that was filled with horrendous immorality. Her father had not only been married to her mother, but he had uh, countless women that he knew and had fathered illegitimate children and had lived an immoral and ungodly life. But even though people around her lived ungodly, she refused to participate in these sins and she lived a righteous life. Her work, though, that was created while she was a part of this group was passed around uh, and began to affect and influenced the Protestant Reformation in England. You guys remember Anne Boleyn? Anne Boleyn met her. Anne Boleyn was hanging out with her brother's sister before she died, and she was a part of the court of France. And so there she got to interact, and she got to meet Anne, and Anne sort of discipled her, not only just in good behavior, but began to talk to her about theology and began to teach her. And we know that Anne Boleyn is who influenced Henry VIII and the, the formation of the Church of England. This woman's influence extended all the way to the King of England, all the way from her little kingdom in Navarre, and began to influence her. Anne became her friend, admirer, and disciple of Marguerite and was absorbed by her radical views at the time of Christianity. A written letter by Anne Boleyn after she became queen and married to Henry VIII makes strong expressions of affection for Marguerite. When reformers Calvin and Farrell were expelled from Geneva, the Queen of Navarre demanded to know why this had been. And when, when she asked why, they asked for her help, and she began to aid them in increasing scriptural literacy among women. And it, she... Uh, was advised by men to expel Catholic clergy from France who had been persecuting the church. It is conjectured that uh, Marguerite, the Queen of Navarre, gave Anne the original manuscript of her poem, Mirror of a Sinful Soul. And we know that later on, um, years we hear about this, uh, after Boleyn, Anne Boleyn was executed by Henry VIII, uh, Anne's daughter would become Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. You've heard of Elizabethan, you know, England? That is the Queen Elizabeth. She translated this poem into English when she was 12 years old and she presented it, written in her own hand, to her then stepmother, who was known as Catherine Parr. She was the sixth wife of Henry VIII. This influence of this little girl, married off, you know, when she's just a teenager living way in a kingdom, way, 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 many, many hundreds of miles away from these seats of influence, 
was used by God to create influence all the way to the King of England, all the way even past Henry's death. Catherine Parr was the last of Henry VIII's six wives. She helped raise Edward and Elizabeth and train them in the Reformed faith. And that is why the church flourished in Protestantism for a while until Mary, of course, overtook it. Now, in wealth and in privilege and power, God uses these women in roles that they were placed like Esther for such a time in which they lived. History beckons to us as Christ did and asks us the question, do you see this woman? She is not the traditional woman. She is not the woman who's going around not being seen, but she was there for everyone to see. The last of Henry VIII's wives outlived him, Catherine Parr, as I said, uh, due in part to a brave woman most of you have never heard of. Catherine Parr dared to challenge Henry's errant theology time and again, and he sought to kill her. But she was too smart, and she knew the Bible too well, but he tried She was too clever for him. She kept his murderous heart from fulfilling its desires. But honestly, she owed her life to a woman named Anne Askew. Have you guys ever heard of Anne? Anne Askew was immortalized by John Fox in her story in the Acts of Monuments, along with the 28 other women whose courage inspired the nation. Anne Askew's father was William Askew. He was a wealthy landowner and a gentleman in the court of King Henry VIII. Her father had arranged that his eldest daughter, Martha, would be married. But when Martha died, he then put his other daughter, who was only 15 in, to be married. Her name was Anne. And she married him to a Catholic man. And she she had been converted to the Reformed faith. And so this didn't turn out too good. They say that she had two children in the early part of her marriage, both of which uh, were not to live. And when they didn't live and when she would not turn away from her reformed faith, her husband threw her out on the street and she was homeless. She didn't take it uh, sitting down though. She went into London and she began to preach the word of God. Now not preachers like pastors, but more like whoever she would see, she would talk to. She would tell them about what she believed. And people began to hear her. And among them, there were women in the town that heard her. And the women that heard her kept bringing her to more and more women. And and eventually she made it into the home of Catherine Parr, the Queen of England. And there she began to instruct and teach about how God's word says we're saved by grace through faith. That's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. And this was what caused Catherine Parr's heart to be changed. And what I'm going to share with you about her is difficult to hear, but I want you to hear it. Can you guys stay with me for just a few more minutes? Anne Askew, she was very devout. She studied the Bible. She memorized Scripture. She was true to her belief for the entirety of her life. After she went and became uh, known even among the queen, at the time Henry VIII's sixth wife and her inner circle, her faith in Christ, trusting Him alone, she was, uh, she was arrested. And they let her go, and then they arrested her again, and then they arrested her again. It was, it was very difficult. For her, and they put her, honey, in the Tower of London. And they put her in the Tower of London, and she was the only woman ever in the Tower of London to be tortured. And they tortured her. And they tortured her because Henry VIII wanted her to testify that his wife was a bad woman and that she was going against him. And she just wanted to hear her say, Catherine Parr has heard these words and listened to me. But guess what? She wouldn't say it. They hurt her in many ways. And they put her in this horrible thing called the rack. 
And the wrath is so horrible, I hate even to describe it to you, but it's really necessary maybe for you to understand how courageous she was. A rack is a, 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 a wooden object, with has, it has metal in it, but when they put you in it, they attach your feet to one part of it and the upper part to another, and they begin to pull you apart. Just kind of like, imagine being tied to a pole, but tying a truck to your feet and driving off. It wasn't quite like that, but it was slow. And as they would do it very slowly, her ankles came out of joint and her knees came out of joint. Her hips came out of joint and her shoulders, she was unable to walk, all disjointed. They kept coming to her. Are you ready to tell us some names now? And history tells us not one name did she utter, but she sang, she quoted scriptures, and she told them that she could never, ever recant, no matter what they did to her. And they actually got to the point where the people in the jail went to uh, the king and they said we can't do this anymore they said this woman is too kind and too godly she doesn't rail against us cuss us out and yell at us she just loves us and she said we can't do this anymore they said her screams could be heard all over London out even outside of the, the, the of the tower of London and so finally in an act of mercy they saw they went and they said well then let's just burn her at the stake and so they took her out and they tied her, they actually chained her to a stake, but she couldn't walk and they had to carry her out in a special chair in order for her to go to her own execution. On July of 1546, they took her uh, to Smithfield, a place in London. And as they set the chair ablaze, they got one of their... Uh, ministers to get up and to preach and he began to preach a sermon and the amazing thing they said was is when he would say rightly what the Bible says she would say amen that's right that's right and they thought well she's she's going to recant she's going to turn away and just when they thought she was going to the, the, the preacher went on to some errant Catholic doctrines and you know what she said there he goes again he's missing it He's going away from the book. He's going away from Scripture. Even to her dying days. Can you believe this? She's like, she wanted him to know. She wasn't amening the ungodliness, but she wasn't about to just put him off. When he spoke the Word of God, she said, that's right. But when he went off the Word of God, she said, he's missing it. He's going without the book. What a woman of courage. All of England looked at her and held their hands to their heart thinking of her story as they read about it in John Fox's account. Hand to heart, they would say, oh, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Oh, if I could be a woman like that, a godly, godly woman. The woman in our text was seen as a sinner by Simon, an irritant, a fly in the ointment. He did not even offer our Lord. To Jesus, she was the most important, most thankful one in the room. And like so many that have never been noticed, like the widow who gave her might and was pointed out by Jesus, God sees all. God sees you. God sees the example of godliness when we offer it. Keep offering it. I'll tell you one more last story because it's really not one that has to do with kings and important people. And people that would be remembered, this story would never have been told were it not for a witness that, that watched what happened, wrote it down. This person wasn't important, wasn't influential, didn't do anything for anybody, but her death spoke more than her life ever would. Her name was Margaret Wilson. It was nearly a hundred years after the time of these other great women 
Margaret was what they call a covenanter. And Margaret was dedicated to uh, believing in Christ alone for salvation. But she would not swear allegiance to the king. And uh, she was not very educated. She didn't write poems. She didn't have a salon. She wasn't important. But little Margaret knew that she could never turn from Christ. And she was picked up by some dragoons who were working for uh, the, the Catholic monarch at the time. And uh, said, you must swear allegiance to the Catholic Church. And, to the, and she said, I won't do that. And so they put her in isolation. Her dad was despondent. Her mom was despondent. They, they, they went and they begged for her to, to, to just say what they want you to say. And they'll let you go. She was just 18 years old. They tried. They, her dad went and got letters from, the, from people and, and got a reprieve. And she's just like, no, I, I won't recant. And oh, honey, you're really, you're messing things up. But in February of 1685, um, well, I'm, let me just move on. It'd take too long to explain it all. But I'll tell you the end of the story. The father of the girls went to Edinburgh. He made a plea to the Privy Council in Scotland. He, he, got, he paid money. He got the letters of reprieve written. But when they got there, the people there were so mad. Because no matter what they did to her, she would not recant. That they didn't care. She had a she had a pardon, but they wouldn't give it to her. So they took her out, and they thought of such a cruel, horrible thing to do to her. They said, "We we're going to fasten these posts in the ground near the sea, and when the tide comes in, it'll slowly come up, and it will drown her. And maybe that slow time will give her time to think and give her time to recant. But it did not." History tells us, Fox tells us that while the tide was coming in, they begged and pleaded with her. Her family went, oh, please do what we want you to do. They urged her, come on. At one point, her, as the tide came up and she began to choke and to drown uh, because she couldn't get her head above the water as the waves came in, uh, her family thought she said something and they went and they told the, the people to come down to the water. She's, she's ready and to and they said, say a prayer for the king. And she said, oh, may the Lord save our king. And she prayed a beautiful prayer for the king. And then they said, okay, now now make the oath to the Catholic Church. Now make the... And she says, well, I can't do that. Please leave me. Please let me go. And they said, as the waters came and the waters came to take her life, that she quoted the scripture, that she sang, and that she was delighted to give her life for Christ. She is more like the woman who was quietly serving the Lord. No one knew it. This wasn't an important person. There was no court for her to influence, no kingdom for her to affect. She was only 18 years old at the time of her death, and she was buried not in an important churchyard anywhere in a place no one would likely see unless they wanted to go way out of their way. But let me read for you Luke 7 one final time as God draws our attention to woman after woman through the scripture. Today he draws our attention to this woman. And behold, everybody say, behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. Everybody say, a sinner. She knew that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping, began to wash his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. When the Pharisee which had been bidden saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, 
would have known who and what manner of woman that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have somewhat to say against thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debts, one owed 500 pence and the other 50, and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore which one of them will love him most. Simon answered and said, I suppose that the he who was forgiven most, he said, thou hast rightly judged. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, I want you to say with me, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gave me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gave me no kiss, but the woman, since the time I came, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou did not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Do you see that woman? That woman can be you today. A woman seen for her love for God, grateful for her forgiveness. Let that be all of us today. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you could have written us a book of rules and regulations and statutes, but you gave us a book filled with stories. And it is difficult for us not to imagine what it must have been like that day in the home of Simon. Nobody has a statue of Simon today. Nobody remembers who he was or cares. He is like so many of us who think our importance the most significant factor. But Lord, as you have done and you continue to do, you point out the things that we miss. The widow who gives her might, who is remembered to this day, was an unseen woman. She represents the many millions of unseen women who dedicate their lives to you and serve you, not for anyone to see, but for love and gratitude to you. I pray to God that you would give us love and gratitude and we would see these women And they could be examples to us today in how to serve you and to show our thanksgiving for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity. To listen to our audio sermons, we would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.